Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. Hello and welcome to A Million Other Choices. I am, as always, your host, Kim. The story that I have for you today includes pretty graphic violence committed towards young children, so it might be hard to listen to for some of you. It spans from about 1944 to 2010, so if you aren't normally a fan of old stories, don't worry, we're going to travel through time to modern day. This case is just, it's so sad and it's so disgusting, it is worth going back to the beginning of it for a full exploration. This is The Woodcock Murders. We started Toronto on the afternoon of September 15, 1956. Little Wayne Mallet, who was visiting his grandparents with his older siblings, were playing outside of their grandparents' house. And the older kids took off on a streetcar on him to go downtown. So he got kind of bored and he wandered away from the yard to venture into the neighborhood, which was something small children were easily able to do back in 1956 despite no cell phones or GPS to keep tabs on kids. Parents let their kids out to play because serial killers and gross pedos, although they existed, they weren't something that was on any parent's radar as possibilities. And the part of Wayne's story that should have been the worst for Wayne's mom to learn was that during that afternoon he had wandered down to some railway tracks by the Canadian National Exhibition Fairgrounds, which were actually closed at the time, but he didn't make it home by dinner and a search was launched. A security guard down by the fairgrounds who monitored the empty grounds remembered an odd teenage boy wearing black-rimmed glasses that had come up to him and asked him if dead bodies were ever found in the woods around the grounds. So they focused their search on that area because, you know, that's a little odd. Seven-year-old Wayne Mallet's body was found early the next morning right in that area. His face had been pushed into the dirt and pennies were scattered around his body, not like an accident, but more like something that had been done purposely. Also, between his splayed feet was a pile of human defecation, and not from the loosening of Wayne's bowels upon his death, but deposited there by somebody squatting and having a bowel movement. He appeared to have been undressed and then redressed after he was dead. His cause of death was strangulation, and there were two distinct bite marks— one on his calf and the other on his buttocks. It was a rather disturbing and graphic scene for investigators. And because of the shocking and horrific nature of this crime, detectives are pretty pressed to solve Wayne's case and get justice for his parents, who were, of course, distraught and were never the same again after that. It was determined that the bite marks on Wayne's body were from someone in their teen years, so not an adult, and this made the boy with glasses a pretty good suspect as the killer. 
At the time, in 1956, Toronto police were investigating cases of teenage runaways, and one of these kids recently reported missing by his mom and hiding from his family was 14-year-old Ron Moffat. They talked to his mom and discovered that he was actually hiding in one of the apartments in the building his parents owned. Now, Ron had a pretty good alibi. He had been at the Bloor Street Theater on that day that Wayne had disappeared. Uh, but that was no bother for the police. He wore glasses and he matched the description. He also had worked at the Canadian Exhibition and therefore had knowledge of the area. So they took a terrified Ron downtown to the station to be interrogated without his parents, who weren't even notified that he had been arrested until much later. Two officers put him into a small interrogation room and got immediately right into his face, one playing good cop and the other one taking the bad cop role. So after several hours, he confessed. He told Nate Henley, who wrote the book The Boy on the Bicycle years later, after hours and hours of badgering, I don't care who you are, you'll tell them anything. It's hard for people to understand why anybody would confess to a crime they didn't commit. If you're in that room for four or five hours and you're without drink or food, you'll say anything to get out of that room and stop them from questioning you. See, he was tried for murder as a youth, so his name was not released, um, fortunately, at the time. He was convicted of manslaughter, and he told Nate, It was just terrifying. I thought I was never going to get out of there. Then the guards telling me that when I turned 18, they were going to take me back to Toronto and hang me. And that was really terrifying. After eight months in prison doing essentially hard time, he was finally acquitted when it was learned who the real killer was, which we're going to get to in a bit. But he said that the judge, when he was acquitted, told him that he had deserved what had happened because he confessed. Quote, well, geez, the confession was coerced by two big brawny detectives in my face, a 14-year-old boy in a little eight-by-eight room threatening you with violence. The story gets even sadder after he was released, which he never did receive any compensation for. He found it difficult to get work later and was in and out of psychiatric hospitals for a big portion of his life. But his parents, he says, were the ones that suffered the most. Quote, my parents lost everything. They lost more than anyone. They suffered the scorn of neighbors. It got so bad they were selling furniture to pay for my legal bills. My mother would never talk about this after it happened. Ron eventually settled in, in Sault Ste. Marie and worked for 20 years as a caretaker at the Algoma District School Board. Uh, as of the time that I'm writing this, he is still alive and working as an editorial cartoonist. Uh, he kept his wrongful conviction a secret from everyone for many years until deciding to open up to Nate Henley for his book about the case. Less than a month later, on October 6, 1956, the body of nine-year-old Gary Morris was found on Cherry Beach. Cherry Beach was back then, I have no idea about now, not exactly a vacation hotspot in Toronto. It is at the tip of the industrial portlands area and has no boardwalk or picnic areas, and a lot of the area is more like marshland. Large accumulations of seaweed also make it not exactly great for swimming. So back in 1956, it was really more of a gathering place for Toronto's seedy underbelly. Gary's body was scattered this time with paper clips rather than pennies. He had been undressed and then redressed just like Wayne had been, and he also had a bite mark, and this one was on his throat. He had been beaten and stomped to death, but there was also evidence of strangulation. His cause of death was a perforated liver from the beating, which was likely caused by the stomping. By October 6th, when his body was found, Ron Moffat was already in jail and charged with Wayne's murder, 
So he would continue to remain there, though, for several more months. Gary was determined to be a runaway from the Cabbage Town area, and most of you familiar with the Cabbage Town Toronto neighborhood today will know it as a refreshed and gentrified cute little neighborhood with preserved colorful Victorian-style homes that sell for well over a million dollars. Avril Lavigne was actually once a resident. But in 1856, Cabbage Town got its name from the Irish immigrants that had come to Canada in the 1840s, and many of them were so poor that they grew cabbage in their front yards. After World War II, the area was so run down and poor that people resorted to many families living in one house. As a result of this poverty, most of the houses started to deteriorate and became known as a slum. In 1964, the Toronto Star wrote that Cabbage Town has become a downhill ride if you're on your way up. You don't dare stay there for long unless you live in Regent Park. But in the 1970s, a number of rich professionals who were activists for historical preservation started moving in and fixing up the area. The point being the area that Gary was from, he had a bit of a habit of running away and being unaccounted for for periods of time and wasn't exactly reported missing and had actually last been seen about a week before he was found. Gary's birth station in life also meant that the police didn't really bother to make much of a connection to Wayne's murder and didn't spend nearly as much time on investigating as they probably should have, even though he was just a little wee peanut. The only clue was witnesses saying that they saw a boy on a red bike around 16 years old shortly before he was discovered, but not much of a description of the teenager. Things laid low for a little while, at least, when it came to murder. There were a few attempted kidnappings and child molestation cases where the perpetrator kind of matched the description of this teenage boy on the red bike with glasses, but we have to give investigators at the time a bit of a pass on their investigations. The term serial killer hadn't even been coined yet, and in 1856 they were still prosecuting homosexuals and lynching people for having dark pigmented skin. So expecting them to have looked up the DNA in a CODIS or used FBI profiling techniques would be asking a bit much. And crime escalation patterns weren't something people discuss like we do today when we hear of some kid hurting an animal or something like that. Then on Saturday, January 19th, 1957, they received a call that would change everything. Around 3.25 that afternoon, while Frida Ald and Burnett Voice were getting ready to go shopping together with their four-year-olds, Johnny Ald and Carol Voice, four-year-olds aren't exactly known for their patience listening to their mum's gossip and chatter, so they were dressed in their snowsuits and they were sent out of the apartment building at 1066 Danforth Avenue down to the main floor to wait on the sidewalk for them. And it just so happened that Johnny's dad, William, was on duty as a clerk at the Bain Brothers paint store at the time, which was located directly below their apartment so he could see the, th- the two little tots through his store window. When William had his head turned, distracted by a customer, a teenager with glasses on a red Schwinn bike rode up to the two little peanuts and asked them if they wanted a ride on his bike, but they would have to take turns. Johnny and Carol haggled back and forth a bit, and then it was agreed that Carol would go first. So the teenager lifted her up onto the handlebars and started off towards Donlands Avenue. Uh, But Johnny panicked when he saw which way they were going, knowing that he wasn't allowed to go west of his own street. So he ran upstairs to his mum and told her what had just happened, and the two mums called the police. The police traveled the icy roads in the direction that the boy and Grace were headed, which led to a ravine by the Prince Edward Viaduct that connected Bloor Street and Danford Avenues. 
and around 11 o'clock that night in the darkness, her little nude body was located. An autopsy the next morning under the harsh fluorescent lights of the morgue, the true horror of what little Grace had endured was revealed. Grace had been strangled to unconsciousness. Her eyes had been gouged out. She was sexually assaulted, and then a tree branch had been shoved so hard and so far into her vagina that her liver had been ruptured. The final indignity had been a kick to the head. And did I mention that this little peanut was four years old? Four freaking years old. Thankfully, this time there was more than one witness that could give a good description and a composited sketch was published on the front page of the Toronto Star. Deputy Police Chief Archie McCarthy had assigned 250 detectives to Grace's case and was quoted as saying, someone, probably his mother, knows who this killer is, and I'll ask her to tell us despite the anguish she will suffer. And that same day, a classmate of the high school recognized the boy in the picture as 17-year-old Peter Woodcock. Peter Woodcock was remembered by a couple of officers as the boy caught the previous June with a missing 10-year-old girl. In that incident, apparently, according to him, the girl had told Peter that she wanted to commit suicide. Now, this was a 10-year-old girl and asked Peter to help her. But after starting to choke her, he chickened out. Now, what's so interesting about this is that this is just a tiny little incident noted in only two reports, and there is nothing about what, if any, charges he faced for this. It's very strange, but clearly there weren't a lot of consequences for it. Peter Woodcock had been born in Peterborough on March 5, 1939, to a teenage mom who was a factory worker. There are reports that she gave him up for adoption as a newborn, but other reports say he was seized from his mom by social workers. But either way, he spent his first three years of life being bounced from foster home to foster home and often abused, once getting severely injured in the neck by a foster father. Part of the issue apparently was that as a baby, he cried constantly and he was hard to handle. Uh, Then when he was three, he was adopted into what was always been described as a loving and supportive home of a very affluent couple, Frank and Susan Maynard, who lived in a big fancy house on Linton Boulevard. From the onset, Peter displayed some issues with what we would now probably call detachment disorder. He just didn't seem to bond or show affection towards anyone, and even his adopted mum, who tried very hard to show him love. He was also extremely fearful, showing a high level of anxiety towards anyone new. He was very slow to learn and to talk, and he had kind of this odd walking gait, where he would move his same side leg and arm together as he walked. The Maynards worried about him and the abuse. It was becoming obvious that he had suffered, and they took him to the hospital for sick children for a mental health program that they had there for what they called at the time maladjusted children. I will be right back after these brief messages. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Susan Maynard was quoted by the Toronto Star. She told a reporter after he was arrested, we loved him like our own and gave him everything he needed. He always told us he was so lucky to have good parents like us in a good home. But she did admit to him being a sad little fellow and always very nervous. In truth, Peter was more than just a handful. He broke things and vandalized their home, cut up their clothes, the drapes, used a knife to mark up the furniture, and on one occasion had killed and autopsied the family's pet canary. The Toronto Sick Kids Hospital, um, they were concerned that he was already exhibiting signs of schizophrenic tendencies, and by the time he was 10, his foster parents feared leaving him alone in case he burned the house down. By the time he was 11, he was doing not good socially, as I'm sure you can imagine. He was being bullied in school. At 12, he was sent to a special school for children with psychiatric issues, Sunnyside Children's Center, which is an inpatient school and probably not worthy of such an upbeat name. And he was having some issues with acting out sexually and rather aggressively with some of the other boys. But somehow he was able to convince staff at Sunnyside that he was making progress. But in reality, he had developed some violent fantasies and once told a social worker who took him to the Canadian National Exhibition, I wish a bomb would fall on the exhibition and kill all of the children. By the time he was 15, he had escaped into a fantasy world where he was the leader of an imaginary gang of soldiers on bikes. The Red Schwinn bike that he had received from his parents as a gift was his most treasured possession, and he would ride it all over the town. By this time, he was also grappling with some pretty strong and sick sexual urges towards children and was fascinated by the human body and anatomy. In exchange for rides on his bike, he would often get neighborhood children to undress for him so that he could examine their privates. And it was around this time that the incident with the 10-year-old girl had happened, the supposedly suicidal 10-year-old. He admitted to his therapist that he had become aroused sexually while he was choking the girl. Peter did confess rather rather readily to Carol's murder and the murders of Wayne and Gary. He also admitted to the molestation of about 11 other kids and even took police on a tour of some of the hidden spots that he liked to use for choking his victims into unconsciousness and then using their bodies as a private playground. He said that his first murder had been Wayne and he had seen him while out riding on his bike. He says that he was immediately taken with the young boy and started to talk to him and find out both of them had an interest in trains. So once down in the wooded area behind the fairgrounds, he told him to take off his clothes, and then Wayne said no. Peter kicked him and bit him. Uh, Once on the ground, he pushed his face into the dirt until he stopped moving, and then undressed him and examined his naked body before putting his clothes back on him and leaving. A month later, he ran into Gary on his bike and lured him to Cherry Beach, where he grabbed him by the throat and strangled him until he was unconscious, undressed him and looked him over. But Gary regained consciousness, so he kicked him and bit him and stomped on him until he was dead. Pretty much knew the story with Carol. He had ordered her down into the ravine by the viaducts 
and choked her until she passed out, ripped off her clothes, gouged out her eyes, and rammed a tree branch into her before fleeing the scene, knowing it wasn't going to be long before she was found. The only thing that he seemed to have any remorse about was that his adopted mum would find out, saying, My fear was that mother would find out. Mother was my biggest fear. I didn't know if the police would let her at me. They didn't let Susan and Frank at him, but after a four-day trial, only for the murder of Grace and two hours of deliberation, a jury found him not criminally responsible, and he was sent to Oak Ridge Mental Health Center, which is a division of the Penitentiary Maximum Security Penitentiary. Now, if you think that we are at or even near the end of the story, you're going to be wrong. You see, you can lock someone up and throw away the key, but time still marches on. And at the time that Peter was sent to Oakville, they were doing some pretty experimental treatments that in today's world we would consider pretty shady. But at the time, it was just par for the course of the old psych wards. He was kind of used as a guinea pig and studied, and they were working with some experimental treatments with LSD. He was put in an artificial womb and made to participate in what Oak Ridge called the 100-Day Hadean where patients deemed to be psychopaths were crammed, packed into a room together as a way of forcing them to start to develop empathy. I'm pretty sure none of it worked. Initially, he wasn't too happy with his new residence, once taking up some self-harm in the form of wedging a wire into his penis, but he settled in actually quite nicely. He was able to manipulate a lot of the patients, and better yet for him, he now had access to captive men of all ages and sizes and shapes to sexually brutalize. He convinced fellow inmates that he could contact the outside with a gang called the Brotherhood, and in order to be initiated into the gang, he would have to perform oral sex on him and bring him gifts of cigarettes. In 1981, for some odd reason, he legally changed his name to David William Kruger. I'm not sure how you can do that. You'd think it's kind of a legal thing. You have to be considered mentally fit enough to sign a form, um, but that's what he did. I'm still going to refer to him as Peter, though, because I don't want to confuse you while you wash dishes or are half listening while you yell at your kids to stop fighting and suddenly think you're listening to a different episode. Anyways, while in Oakville in 1977, Peter became friends with a guy named Bruce Hamill, who came to live at Oakville when he was 21 after being found not criminally responsible for stabbing his neighbor in Ottawa, a 58-year-old school caretaker, 36 times because she made my mother mad. She was mean, rude, and very insulting. Hamill and Peter were actually more than friends and became lovers, but Bruce was given an absolute discharge in 1988 and left Oakville. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, an absolute discharge is one of the three different kinds of things a psych review can provide you if you're ever deemed not criminally responsible. It basically means in the eyes of the review board, you are either cured or compliant with taking your meds and no longer a danger to society. Now, remember when you get an NCR, it's basically a not guilty or acquittal. So after you're deemed good to go, you are released without any restrictions, unlike a murder conviction where you serve however many years and then you live on parole and under supervision until you die. So Bruce wasn't supervised and he actually got married and then got a job as a security guard at none other than the Ottawa courthouse. Meanwhile, Peter had managed to convince staff at Oakville that their treatments were helping, so he was downgraded in security and moved to Brockville Psychiatric Hospital, which is considered a medium security hospital. At Brockville, life was rather grand for Peter. 
He got to get field trips to the Smith Falls Railway and even took him to see the movie Silence of the Lambs, which seems like an odd choice for anyone in that situation to be able to see. And unknown to the staff at Brockville, he rekindled his romance with Bruce Hamill. And Bruce, of course, at this time, had stopped taking his meds. So what could possibly go wrong? Well, Peter wasn't happy with with a patient at Brockville named Dennis Kerr. Seems Dennis had rebuffed his sexual advantages, and Peter wasn't going to stand for that. So he called up Bruce on a phone that obviously wasn't recorded. And remember, Bruce is now off his meds. He tells him that killing Dennis would get him initiated into the Praetorian Guard, another fictional gang of Peter's, this one run by aliens, and he would get the ultimate C4-level recruit. But... He had to sodomize him during the act of killing him in order to get to that level. And if he did, he would get a top security job at the Parliament buildings and a $50,000 bonus. Oh, and this brain disorder, as he referred to it, would be cured. So on July 13, 1991, Bruce managed to get himself what the hospital called an approved person to supervise Peter's very first unescorted leave from the hospital grounds. Something I find completely ludicrous. Maybe in 1956 I could see something like that, but you'd think by 1991 you'd want to be doing some kind of background check on your people supervising the mentally ill. But anyways, that's what the deal was. So on that day, Bruce was to pick up Peter and take him for ice cream, and they had three hours off the grounds. Before picking Peter up, Bruce made a pit stop at a hardware store and got a wrench, a hatchet, some knives, and a sleeping bag which, had I been the one checking him out of the store, would have maybe made me lift an eyebrow. But I guess this person just figured he was going camping. The interesting thing is that Bruce had a hallmark, wild-eyed look that would have arose suspicion even when just standing still at a bus stop. He took his supplies and hid them in a grove of trees behind the hospital before going into the front doors to sign out Peter and collect him for their adventure. Peter had given himself 10 minutes of his three hours to dispose of Dennis, so he had to get moving. Instead of heading for ice cream, they went around to the back of the hospital where Peter had convinced Dennis to meet him under the lure of having a set of drums for him. Dennis was obviously not supervised on the grounds and met him behind the hospital and told him to come with them into the woods because that's where the drum set was, and the 27-year-old Dennis Kerr was more than happy to oblige. Peter then struck him with a wrench and beat him with it repeatedly, while Bruce grabbed the hatchet and hacked and stabbed him more than a hundred times before taking turns sodomizing him and then sexually mutilated him. Peter later referred to Dennis's killing as the thrill, the last hurrah, the final episode. Dennis was left unrecognizable and his head was a bloody pulpy mess, his body cut open and partially decapitated. Bruce then took a handful of sleeping pills as Peter had instructed him to wait for this gang of aliens to come for him and inject him with a potion that was going to fix his disordered thinking. Peter's original plan was to sexually assault and murder Bruce as well, but by this time he was 52, he'd packed on a few pounds, and all that stabbing and sodomizing had worn him out. So he just walked to the closest police station and turned himself in he still had about two hours left on his day pass. The police came and collected Bruce from his sleeping bag. And both Bruce and Peter were once again found not criminally responsible and sent back to Oak Ridge. 
Peter spent the next 18 years doing the odd interview, listening to shortwave radio, and following the news of the outside world. In those interviews, he said, I'm accused of having no morality, which is a fair assessment because my morality is whatever the system allows. He blamed what he called his alien self for the murders he committed and that he was really just angry as a teen. He once showed an interview where cartoon version of Hansel and Gretel with the witch looking at cookbooks with the two kids in cages beside her. Peter noted when the interview didn't exactly share the humor of the joke, only someone like me could appreciate the humor in that cartoon. On his 71st birthday, March 5th, 2010, another inmate, a serial killer that was not named, advised staff that Peter was dead in his bed. He had died of natural causes, probably related to his eating habits and the weight that he carried around his midsection in his aging years. He had no family to collect his remains or mourn his death. Bruce Hamill died at 63 on May 21st, 2019. Oak Ridge was demolished in 2014 with Waypoint being built in its place. Now I'm going to come back to this in a minute because that story gets very interesting. But in 2014, the Toronto Star published an op-ed that criticized the NCR reform bill that was going on around that year. The article pointed out that lives are not going to be saved by amendments to the legal bill that makes us choose between public safety and the rights of the mentally ill. And this reform bill only dealt with changes to how patients are dealt with after an NCR finding, but didn't address the issues that are happening in the mental health care system before tragedy strikes, something I would wholeheartedly agree with. Vincent Lee, who decapitated 22-year-old Tim McLean on a Greyhound bus in 2008, had been receiving treatment at a hospital in Ontario, but discharged himself against medical advice. In Ontario, as in most provinces, you can't be involuntarily committed unless a doctor can show that he or she is a clear danger to themselves or others, and that danger has to be considered a significant risk. Richard Kashker, who woke up in the middle of the night screaming that he was possessed by the devil and slapped his wife, he sought out treatment at a walk-in clinic the day before he then stole a snowplow and drove it over 35-year-old Sergeant Ryan Russell. The walk-in doctor had advised him to check himself into an addiction recovery center. And a study has shown that 65% of people that had declared NCR on, on a serious violent offense had been hospitalized prior to the offense. And one of the biggest problems with the bill is these absolute discharges as in released without any conditions and no follow-up. To get an absolute discharge, a patient must show that he has developed insight into his illness and is committed to continued treatment, which is great, but Dr. John Brafford says, the bad news is that violence and mental disorder are associated. The good news is that when you treat it, the violent risk goes away. However, the risk for violence can return if those individuals stop taking medication and become ill again, and that doesn't change when you get an absolute discharge. He feels that some follow-up on patients' discharge would be a step in the right direction. The community treatment orders that exist in Ontario are too weak. If they were beefed up, they would fill the gap, but at the moment, they don't. And things are not much better out here in the West with long wait times for psychiatric consults and community resources. Stigma has also been looked at because it prevents a lot of people from seeking treatment. 
Until we deal with those pieces, we're going to continue to have folks who aren't supported, who deteriorate, and who then kind of drop under the radar until something blows up. And when it blows up, it's the police that end up getting involved in it. And when it's a horrific offense, then the media and the public become aware of it and say, well, how could this have been allowed to happen? The warning signs are there, but interventions by the health system proves ineffective. It's a failure of the mental health system that must be addressed in order to protect public safety and address the needs of the mentally ill patients. More work is needed to determine the cause of these significant failures. According to the Toronto Star article, these concerns are shared by nearly everyone who has a role in the system. Victims, researchers, politicians, psychiatric and legal experts, which raises an important question. If the real problem is a failure of the healthcare system and not the justice system, then why aren't we working to fix that instead? Good point. I completely concur. Now, lastly, before I sign off for the day, a court judgment stemming from a lawsuit over Oak Ridge was concluded in 2021, and it awarded huge sums of money to former patients of Oak Ridge for their mistreatment. The suit claimed the province of Ontario did not provide adequate oversight of the patient's welfare and rights, leaving vulnerable, mentally ill patients to the custody and care of psychiatrists who embarked on experimental programs in conditions that fell short of ethical standards that included torture, degradation, forced hallucinations, and human experimentation. According to Joel Rochon, the lawyer for the patients, it was only a step away from the Nazi experiments. He had 28 plaintiffs, which included Bruce Hamill, and the court case took 21 years to conclude. This landmark case underscores the inviolability and the right of human dignity to every person regardless of who they are. No one should be exposed to dehumanizing and degrading treatment and experimentation. It caused horrible suffering. Bruce, who died in 2019 with no family to claim him, was not entitled to the $150,000 that had been awarded to him. In fact, he never even knew it was awarded. And that was the wild ride that was the Woodcock Murders. Huh, that one is brutal, and I'm going to be back again next week with another wild ride. Do your thing, subscribe, rate, review, all that good stuff. And as always, thank you so much for listening. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.